It's very tempting to say, turn in your Bibles now to the book of Hosea, but we won't. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, please, chapter 12. Today I'm going to begin a relatively short series on biblical foundations for change. Can we change? Can change happen in our lives? And uh, we'll be considering that today as we look at a number of uh, two passages in Romans and one in 2 Corinthians. Hear now the word of the living God as we read from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now would you turn back to Romans chapter 8. And look with me at verse 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You must be on the phone because I ain't hearing no leaves rattling. <laughs> or um, laptops. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, after an extended discussion on the uh, advantage of the new covenant, he concludes in verse 18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we look at the biblical foundations for change. We pray that you would light a fire in our hearts today to want you more than we want anything else. And we know that there are many obstacles that stand in the way. And there's much that needs to occur uh, for our being rooted and living in the soil of the gospel so that our lives would be fruitful and would redound to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you talk about the subject of change, it's an interesting subject to think about, especially with the way people view us in today's culture. Uh, there's a lot of talk in our culture about... Um, 
whether or not we can change. But one of the goals of the Christian life is simply this. It is that we will be conformed into the image of Christ. In the Old Testament, the command of God was, be holy as I am holy. And that is repeated in the book of Peter, be holy for I am holy. But the New Testament says being holy is being like Christ. And so the goal for change in all of our lives is to become as Christ-like as a redeemed sinner can be. Robert Murray McShane used to pray that all the time. Lord, make me as much like Jesus as a redeemed sinner can be. And so we're thinking about the, the concept of transformation, the concept of change, the concept of having a renewed mind. And these are like, for many of you, you've thought about these over the years, and this may be more of a review, but I also think that I always learn something new when I look at these verses that have been instrumental in my own life in growing as a believer. Biblical foundations for change. If you don't have a solid foundation, then uh, your life will fall apart rather quickly. All of us are far from showing forth his likeness. We are not what we ought to be, but bridging the gap between what we are and what we ought to be is one of God's greatest interests, and it ought to be ours as well. We need to change. And my role as being your pastor and shepherd over this church and the elders' role of being shepherds over this church is to do everything we can to help you grow and realize in your daily life how change takes place. And so change is very, very, very important. And we should be changing as believers as we grow in the grace of God. But I still hear echoing in my mind these sentiments. Can people, pastor, ever really change? Can they? I mean, seriously. Can they change? Can I change? Am I and everyone else forever hardwired to be the way that I am? Can we really experience change, not of the superficial variety, but in deep gut-level heart stuff? And the hope of the gospel is a resounding yes, yes, we can change. By God's grace, we can change. And he can change us. And that is the hope that all of us uh, who understand the gospel uh, want to see and know more than anything else. And so one of the great goals is change. Uh, but we need to change. And why do we need to change? Well, I'm going to give you four words to help you understand why we need to change. And those four co concepts are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We were created, the Bible tells us, in the image of God. We were made, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes tells us, upright. We possessed uh, in our uh, original created nature... Um, we reflected uh, the image of God. God calls us his image. He stamped us with his image. And our purpose in living is to reflect his image back to all of creation. 
Ancient Near Eastern kings, when they conquered a territory, would have statues made of themselves, and the statues would be placed at the borders of the entire ter territory of the kingdom so that people could see this kingdom uh, reflects and belongs to this particular king. And the king of the universe, the God who is, stamped us as the apex, the high point of creation with his image. And we were made to reflect him and image him in all of creation. We were given work to do, to tend the garden, to cultivate the garden, to develop creation, to name the animals, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to marry and have children. All of that was ordained by God in the creation. We were to worship him, and we did worship him, and our hearts were totally his until sin occurred in the garden when the devil tempted the woman and she partook of the forbidden fruit, and man fell from that glorious estate. And we fell and we became sinful and we no longer reflected the glory of our creator. We turned from the glory of our creator to creation itself and tried to make a life on our own by our own autonomy, our own law, our own wisdom. And we were cut off and separated from God. And the glorious liberating truth of the Bible is that God did not leave us to him ourselves, but he made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that we would be liberated and freed from our sins and that he would make us new creatures in Christ Jesus and that he would restore to us the image of God in man. He would restore us in holiness and righteousness and truth and that that process of restoration is what we call uh, theologically the word sanctification. It is growing in grace and holiness, and holiness is being like Christ. God has promised that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we have right now redemption already, but redemption not yet. We are being made like Christ, but we are not like him yet. And when he comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that vision of Christ returning will transform us to be like Jesus Christ. But in the present redemptive historical context, we're in that process of redeemed already but not yet. And we are in the process of change. I remember the first, uh, growing up with my father, a phrase that he often used was, there's got to be some changes made in this house and in your life. When I was in the seventh grade, I had probably the strictest teacher I've ever had. Her name, I believe she's dead now, so it doesn't matter, Mrs. Trenum. And Mrs. Trenum was a stern, hard taskmaster. And she terrified all of us in the seventh grade because she was a hard teacher and she was strict and she didn't put up with nonsense and she had this face. I could still see her face. It was a hard, not a kind face. It never smiled, but it was always business. And she wore her white hair up in a bun. And uh, she always had a, a ruler or something. She was slapping things and slapping us with it and everything else. And so Miss Trenum gave uh, a test in science. 
And uh, she had a reputation, so everybody was terrified. Well, she gave us a pop quiz, which I was not prepared for. I had always been a really good student, always made really good grades, but I hadn't even looked at the book. And she gave a pop quiz, and I flunked it. I made an F. I'd never made an F in my life. And the worst of it was, she knew my daddy. She went to church where I went to church. When my daddy and mama saw her, she smiled ear to ear, and it was like a family reunion. But in her class, it was dour. I mean, she was harsh. She had a mean face. And so she made me take this F home to get my father's signature on it. And I debated whether or not I should forge that signature. <laughs> because I know my father, and I knew he wasn't going to like it. So I brought it home, he looked at it, and he looked at me, he looked at the gray. You made an F. Yes, sir, I did. He says, change is going to be made. Here's what's going to happen. Every day you have a reading assignment in science. You're going to read it to me out loud. And then we're going to go over the questions. And he did that to me for six weeks. Six weeks sitting on the couch. I can still see his face in the living room, making me read the assignment, then asking me the questions. And, uh, you know, he basically said to me, it's obvious you're not putting out. You're not giving any effort, and we're not having that. It is not going to be that way in this family, and you, my son, are not going to do that. And so he just, every day, next test, made 100, 100%. <laughs> Brought it home, showed it to him, he says, well, you think you can study on your own now? And I said, yes, sir, because I hated having to do that with him. I, did, I really did not like it. It was almost like shame. It was shame. But I changed. But it was sure willpower. Uh, it was sheer law. I changed and became a better student before it. And I thank God every day my dad did that to me because he taught me something very important. You have to learn how to study. You can't get by on your looks or your natural talents forever. Sometimes you have to work at it. And that was very important, and I learned that. But how do we change? Because it's a lot harder than taking a science test, in case you haven't thought about it for a while. It's extremely difficult. Well, the text today tells us how we change. So look at first at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul here... Uh, chapter 12 is a big moment in Romans. I think Sinclair Ferguson counted one time, and he said there are 305 verses in the first 11 chapters of Romans that are in the indicative. That is, they tell us the story of what God has done for us in Christ. He said there are only about eight verses which command us to do anything in the first 11 chapters of Romans. But in chapter 12, he now begins to tell us the commands of Christ because God has done this for you. Here is how you are to respond in gratitude for all that God has done for you. This is what you are now to do. And so he roots all of these commands in Romans 12 and following in the indicatives of grace in the first 11 chapters. And so it's amazing to see that. So he starts out and he says, Therefore, I 
appeal to you. Appeal is kind of weak. It is both, I know why it's used though, it is both a plea and a command. Paul conveys the verb parakaleo here, a mixture of entreaty and authority, a plea and a command. He then goes on to indicate the people to whom he is addressing this appeal, and that is brothers, the people of God. And then the ground on which he bases this appeal and what it consists of. So Paul basically says, therefore, he refers to God's mercy. Literally, God's mercies in the plural. A Hebraism for the many varied manifestations of his mercy. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to an inexcusable and undeserving sinful people. In giving his son to die for us, in justifying us freely by his grace, in sending into our hearts the life-giving spirit of God, and in adopting us as his children. In particular, the key word of Romans 9 through 11 is the word mercy. For salvation depends not on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And his purpose to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. Further, as the disobedient Gentiles have now received mercy, Paul tells us, so too disobedient Israel will now receive mercy. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he ha may have mercy on them all. It is then in view of God's mercy that Paul issues this ethical appeal. He knows... Uh, not the least from his own experience, that there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. F.F. F. Bruce has written, it was well said by Thomas Erskine of Lynn Lathan that in the New Testament religion, grace and ethics, uh, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. It is not by accident that the Greek word for both is the noun charis, which means grace. And so God's grace, far from encouraging and even condoning sin, is the spring and foundation of righteous conduct. And so the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And the gospel, if it is anything, is good news of mercy and grace. And so in order to change as a person, you must first be rooted deeply in the soil of the gospel. That's why he takes 11 chapters to do it. Because grace is alien to our nature. It's counterintuitive to the way we think. And so changes have to occur in us by his grace. But grace is where we have a foundation as well as a spring for living according to God's will. And notice what he says here in this passage, which is a little ironic to us. He says, by the mercies of God, present your what? Bodies. Bodies. Does that strike you as odd? In order to maintain, it's like we're offering our bodies as a sacrifice, but we're not getting killed, are we? No, we're offering as a sacrifice to live. 
We're sacrificing ourselves in order to really live. He represents us here as a priestly people who in response and gratitude for God's mercy offer and present our bodies as living sacrifices. They are described as both holy and pleasing to God which seems to have the equivalent of being physically unblemished and without defect and a fragrant aroma. Such an offering is interpreted here as a spiritual act of worship. Spiritual translates the Greek word, not pneumatos, for what we usually get spirit or spiritual, but logikos, logikos, logical, rational, reasonable. If the former uh, is correct, the offering of our ourselves in totality the body which includes the inner man as well is the only sensible logical appropriate response to him in his self-giving mercy have you ever given God yourself that's the first thing have you ever said sink swim live or die I'm yours I am giving myself to you have you done that? Have you ever said those words? Have you ever made that kind of commitment? That you are going to be the kind of person, it's all or nothing. I'm going to give myself to the Lord because of what he's done for me, because of his tender mercies, because of his amazing grace. The most reasonable thing I as a sinner could ever do is give myself totally to him and be devoted to no one else. Have you done that? Do you live like you've done that? That's the question, because that's how we begin to change. Then, if we do that, then he tells us we will be able to discern as a living sacrifice, as an act of rational and reasonable worship, we will be able to discern, to know um, God's will. We will be able to see the beauty of it, the truth of it, the acceptability of it, the rightness of it, the goodness of it will become obvious to you. Now, understand that Paul's original audience was brought up in Platonic thought. And they regarded the body as an embarrassing encumbrance. For them, the body was evil. Physicalness was evil. And so the great idea was to escape the body. Their slogan was Soma Sima Esten. The body is a tomb in which the human spirit is imprisoned and from which it longed for escape. Still today, some Christians feel very self-conscious about their bodies. The traditional invitation is to give our hearts to God, not our bodies. But here Paul says it is also important as a spiritual act of worship. No worshiping uh, is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. You know how Paul talks in Romans 6 that our bodies used to be instruments of sin unto unrighteousness and because of the work of the Spirit in our lives and the power of the gospel, our bodies become instruments of righteousness for God's glory. And so we are to give God our body. We are to become a living sacrifice 
Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in chapter 3 that it reveals itself through our bodies, our tongues, which practice deceit, our lips, which spread poison, and mouths, which are full of cursing and bitterness, and feet, which are swift to shed blood, and in eyes, which look away from God. We are to offer the different parts of our bodies, not as to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instrument of righteousness. And so we walk in his path. In the first part of God's, uh, Paul's appeal here, it relates to the presentation of our bodies to God. But the second relates to our transformation according to his will. Notice the, the verse. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, we're not to be conformed to the world. Now, what's he talking about here when he uses the word world? It is the spirit of the age. It's what the Germans call the zeitgeist. It is corporate flesh. It is corporate sinfulness. The world exerts pressure on everyone. That's why people try so hard to conform to the, the trends of the day or to the way things are going because they want to be hip. They want to be in line and it makes sense to them. In their frame of reference is that the world takes them and squeezes them into its mold. Isn't it ironic? And I learned this in the 60s. The more I tried to be like a hippie, the less individualistic I was. And it took me a long time to see that because I thought I was transcendent, man. I was on another plane of coolness. <laughs> hey, I grew up in the 60s, man. And I remember walking around thinking, you know, these people can't see it. They don't have eyes to see it. And I was totally being manufactured into a monad unit of worldliness. That's what shaped me. And you have to be proactive about this. This is what Paul's saying. He says, if, if you're not actively seeking transformation through the renewal of your mind, guess what? The world is taking you and squeezing you into its mold, and you're more like the world than you are Jesus. And people can't really tell the difference. They can't even tell that you're a believer. They don't know it. They don't see it. They don't see it in the way you think, the way you behave, the way you talk, the way you respond to them. And so Paul's version of this call is to counterculturalism, sort of a, a counterculture, a nonconformity. The people of God throughout the ages were always to be people who were a light to the nations. God said to his people in the Old Testament, don't follow their practices, don't worship their gods, obey what I have revealed to you. And... Uh, Another example found in the Sermon on the Mount, surrounded by the false devotion of both Pharisees and pagans, Jesus said to his disciples, do not be like them. We're not to be like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings. We always have lizards in the backyard. I happen to be a big fan of lizards, as long as they're not crawling all over me. But I've noticed that when they get on the wall, they turn what? The color of the wall. You look at me like you don't believe that. They do. Why? Because it makes them able to hide. 
It helps them be able to protect themselves from their, the ones for whom they are prey. And we're not to be a chameleon Christian. Uh, I ain't going to sing Karma Chameleon. That's what a stupid song. But I don't know why that even came into my mind. But we're not, because I, you know, the world's squeezing me at this moment, that's why. But don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Let God transform and renew your minds from within. We human beings seem to be imitative by nature. It's almost like we need a model to copy. And ultimately, there are only two. There is this world, literally this age, which is passing away. And there is God's will, which is good and perfect and pleasing, found, exhibited perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. And so, more important for our understanding of the transformation, which Paul urges here, is the fact that metamorpho, the verb used here, uh, it, for transformed was used to speak of the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember up on the mountain when the veil of his flesh was lifted before Peter, James, and John, and the light of the glory that was in him that had been veiled by his flesh was revealed, and it was like his skin was translucent, and it, it just overpowered uh, the three closest disciples as he was transfigured. And then uh, <laughs> the Lord said, this is my son to whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why? Because Peter was wanting to build a shelter to who? Moses and Elijah. And it's almost like God says, uh-uh, you're missing the point. Both Moses and Elijah point to who? My son. Look at his glory. And so it is to be transformed is to be metamorphosized. That is... A complete change comes over us from within. It's a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. The two value systems. We don't hate the world in its being. We hate the world not ontologically, but its axiology, its values what it believes about right and wrong, what it believes about life and the future and every other thing. Those value systems have always collided. But when we're thinking about the purpose of life and the meaning of life and how to measure greatness and how to respond to evil and about ambition and sex and honesty and money and community and religion and anything else, there are two sets of standards that diverge so completely there is no possibility of reconciliation or compromise. How then does the transformation take place? Can we really change what we want? And the answer the Bible gives us is yes and amen. We can change what we want. The heart wants what the heart wants. You see a beautiful, I was behind a car the other day, it was called a spider, and I don't know anything about a spider, but it looked expensive. And I'm driving around in the car from 2005. He's right in front of me on the interstate ramp to get on the 215. And I press on the pedal to go and look up he's half a mile ahead of me Soon. and I remember thinking to myself I want that car <laughs> I want that car 
And then the other side of me was thinking, I hope I see him pulled over down the road <laughs> with a ticket because it's unsafe to drive that fast. But I mean, it was, whoo, he took off. And the heart, my point is, the heart is the steering wheel of our life. The heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. But can the heart change? You know, Jesus talked a lot about the transformation of the heart. He talked a lot about that. He talked often about that. And he, he, he uh, gave a lot of attention to the heart. And his basic and ultimate use of the word heart was really a metaphor. The heart is the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitments, what we trust the most, what we love the most, what we hope in, what we treasure, what captures our imagination. Every heart has an inclination either toward God or away from God. We always, in the end, do what the heart wants most. But can our hearts be changed? And the resounding answer of the Bible is yes. Have you had your wanter changed? Because that's the fruit of repentance. We want what we want. And it can be disguised a thousand ways. But can you have your wanter changed? And the Bible's answer is yes. It begins in regeneration. When God makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. Where he puts his spirit within us. And he gives us new appetites. And new desires. And a new uh, love for him. And a love for our neighbor. And he equips us at that moment for everything necessary. To live a life of godliness. He makes us new. And then the ongoing process is having renewal of our minds. We have to learn to think differently as believers. We have a gospel paradigm shift. You know, the concept of paradigm, sh paradigm shifting. I asked my wife one time, I said, what is a paradigm? She said, 20 cents. <laughs> Just seeing if you're listening. What's a paradigm? Scientists are the ones who are most often speaking of this concept of a paradigm. That is a lens through which we look to see and interpret all of the data. For the most part, as I understand it, most scientists today, uh, the majority, let's say, uh, have a belief in uh, what I would call atheistic evolution. Some theistic evolution. But the idea that evolution is subtle science. Others are the same way about global warming. But here's what happens. As the reigning paradigm exists, other information starts to trickle in. And you start to think, well, maybe that's not quite right. Maybe it's not unanimous. Maybe there are other people who are seeing it a new way or a different way. And over time, enough data comes in to burst the reigning paradigm, and a new paradigm emerges. And when you come to Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you believe in him and you believe in the gospel, your paradigm shifts. And the way it continues to shift is God's word continues to renew your heart, your mind, the inner person, to where you begin to see and interpret life differently. That's what I mean by biblical change. That's the heart of it. 
That's the glory of it. And what does that look like? What does change look like? We'll talk about that more next time. But it's being conformed to the image of Christ. It's being Christ-like. I become more like Jesus. So we begin to ask ourselves questions like this over and over. Why did I do that? Or why did you do that? And that question why has launched a thousand theories of human nature. Why do people do what they do? Are you an Aries with Jupiter rising? Are you genetically hardwired towards aggression? Are raging hormones the culprit? Do your instinctual psychic impulses conflict with the dictates of society? Have your drives been reinforced by rewarding stimuli? Do you become fixated somewhere on the hierarchy of need? Are you an adult child of something unhappy and determinative? Are you compensating for some perceived inferiority? Did a demon named addiction infiltrate a crevice in your personality? Is your temper melancholic or sanguine or choleric or phlegmatic? I did that because what meets the eye behavior has reasons but the Bible goes deeper it says you do what you do because of what your heart wants you do what you do because of what your heart wants When we look at Scripture, we have to do justice to what the Bible says about the whys and the wherefores of the human heart. And we have to learn to look at our motivations. And the problem with the fall is our motivations are deeply disordered. And part of growing as a Christian is learning to deal with the motives of your heart. Why do you do what you do? What do you really want? Who do you really love? What do you really worship? What makes you happy and elated? What makes you sad and depressed? What makes you angry and furious? What makes you jealous and envious? You see, if being like Jesus, all that was required was to go live in a desert somewhere, you know, but even those guys, they go out and sit on a cactus somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, thinking, Somehow, they become holy, and they still have lustful thoughts, and so they go to the mat with it. What do they do? They castrate themselves, thinking that'll deal with it. No. You know, I hate to tell I wish I could have been there and saved them the time and effort to say, you don't need to do that, my friend. That isn't holiness. Holiness is changing inside out. It is changing the heart. And the heart can be changed because the gospel is what? The power of God. And only God can change. You can't do it. I can make a better grade on a seventh grade science test, but I can't change why I did it. You know why I did it? To get my daddy off my back and pride. That's why I did it. It didn't get my daddy off my back. He was on me. And I know why now he was on me because he was afraid I was like him. That's why he was on me. And he didn't want me to be, make his mistakes. And I thank God for him every day. He was a great man. But the goal for change is to become like Christ. And so we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And Paul makes that plain. Uh, He tells us 
that metamorpho or metamorpho, if you want to be correct, is the idea of the transformation of character and conduct away from the systems of the world and into the image of Christ. The two value systems, this world and God's will, are incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. If you think life is about doing what comes natural, you're in trouble. It's rarely about what's, it's rarely about pure common sense, unsanctified common sense, or doing what comes natural. Whether we're thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life or how to measure greatness or any of those lofty concepts, the whole point is there is no possibility of any change without God's power changing us through his word. How does the transformation take place? By the renewing of our minds so we can test and approve and discern and appreciate and determine to uh, follow God's will. Although Paul doesn't tell us how our mind becomes renewed in this particular verse, we know from other writings which we will look at how our mind becomes renewed. It is a combination of the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. Certainly by regeneration, the Holy Spirit renews every part of our humanness, which has been tainted and twisted with the fall. And that includes our mind. But in addition, we need the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, which acts as an objective revelation of God's will. And here are the stages of Christian moral transformation. First, our mind is renewed by word and spirit. Then we're able to discern and desire what God wills for us. And then we are increasingly transformed by it. And so Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Give me your bodies. And everything as a living sacrifice, the Lord says, Give them to me. And don't be conformed to the world. Now, there have been many overreactions in the history of the church about not being conformed to the world, and usually they're all external. They're trying to escape the world or go move away somewhere else and live in a commune so we don't have to be tainted from the world or separating ourselves from unbelievers totally and separating, moving away into the country and living in a cabin where nobody else lives. But that violates so many other commandments that our minds need to be renewed about. And I always ask people who go to great lengths to to be Christian monks and live in a monastery, who's going to save you from you? Because you're taking with you that heart that needs to be transformed. Well, I could go on and on, but we have to stop somewhere. Here's the point. Is this happening to you? Are you changing? Have you plateaued? Have you never really entered the race? If you truly get it, if you truly get, understand, comprehend, realize mercy and grace, you want to respond. Your heart longs for this. If you don't, you might want to examine your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It is sharp and powerful. It is able to discern between the thoughts and intents of our heart. And Lord, it is a critic of our motivations. 
Lord, we pray that we would be people who would be living sacrifices. We would be people who see it as our call from you to give you ourselves and to be in the world of transformation by the renewal of our minds by your word and spirit, not in the world that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give us people who are experiencing transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.